do you like about Christmas? I like trees and lights. I like carols. I like concerts. I love the Messiah and the Hallelujah Chorus. I love seeing presents under the trees. I love everything about Christmas. On the other hand, it might be that you don't like Christmas. Maybe it's because of your past and the association of memories with Christmas that are unpleasant or painful. Maybe you just don't like Christmas because it interrupts your schedule and it forces you to take time for other things. And like some people, you can't wait for it to be over so you can get back to regular schedules. I've had numerous people tell me that through the years. I can't wait for Christmas to be over. Then I can do what I want to do and need to get done. Well, today is the third day of Advent. And there are two things that we are focusing on during this time of Advent. A Savior has come. But that Savior is the most extraordinary one in all of human history. For he is the incarnation of God. Dodge City, Kansas was in the news this week. And not for a particularly good reason. Dodge City, Kansas has a notorious history. It was a cattle town back in the 1800s and ranchers would drive their cattle there to be loaded on the cars and taken to other places where the meat would be processed. And Dodge City was a lawless place. And a gunfighter turned lawman came to clean it up. His name was Wyatt Earp. And he brought law and order to this town of Dodge City, Kansas. Well, there was another town named Toonstone in Arizona. And it was a lawless town as well, terrorized by a group who wore red sashes. And the mayor recruited the Wyatt brothers to come and clean it up. If you are familiar with Westerns, you might be familiar with the OK Corral, the gunfight at the OK Corral. It took place in Tombstone. It was a showdown moment. But in that moment, one of the Wyatt brothers, Virgil, was shot. And another Wyatt brother named Morgan, who was the sheriff of Tombstone was shot and killed. And Wyatt, who had cleaned up Dodge City, determined to take the badge of a U.S. Marshal. And in a very dramatic scene in this movie, he encounters two of these red sash, lawless gunfighters. One of them about to take aim at his brother Virgil and kill him. Wyatt shoots and kills one of them. And then he says to the other one, 
your days are over. And you go back and you tell everyone, and he pulls back his coat to show his martial badge. He says, you tell them, the law is coming. And then very dramatically he says, the law is coming, and hell is coming. You tell them, hell is coming for them. In Revelation chapter 19, we read these words. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows, but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood. And his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's a very dramatic passage, isn't it? And it's far more dramatic than that scene that takes place in Tombstone with Wyatt Earp. As you and I read the description, there is no question of whom this is referencing. It is the one we know as Jesus Christ, and yet, he is not presented here as Jesus Christ. He is not presented here as the Savior of the nations. Instead, he is presented here as one out of whose mouth comes a sharp sword, that cuts both ways. He is known as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is coming to judge the nations. And he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. In other words, you and I might say, and not to be sacrilegious in any way, but to understand the gravity. The law is coming, and hell is coming with him. For we go on to read, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Then I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed miraculous signs on his behalf. With those signs, he delighted those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. 
The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. And then we read in chapter 20 in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The Lutheran pastor who spoke against the German Nazi government and ultimately paid for it with his imprisonment and his death, wrote these words as he was imprisoned by the Gestapo during an advent of 1944. We have become so accustomed to the idea of divine love and of God's coming at Christian, Christmas that we no longer feel the shiver of fear that God's coming should arouse in us. We are indifferent to the message, taking only the pleasant and agreeable out of it, and forgetting the serious aspect that the God of the world draws near to the people of our little earth and lays claim to us. Let me ask you today, on this third Sunday of Advent, this season that is intended to cause us to understand the greatness of our need for a Savior. Have you become so accustomed to the idea of God's love and His coming at Christmas that you no longer feel the shiver of fear? That words like Revelation chapter 19 and chapter 20 should inspire in us. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 we read, It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. It is appointed unto every person who is alive a day of death. Now, when you and I read about death in Scripture, it's not simply a cessation of life. It's not just the end of everything and then there is nothing. Death in the Bible has its real definition in this. It is separation from life. Life that is defined as the life of God. You see, the life that you and I are living on earth is a substitute life. It's not the life that God intended for people. 
It is not the life that he brought people into in the Garden of Eden. It's not the world that he intended. You might be enjoying life and enjoying this world, but it's a substitute. It is not what God intended. Death came as a result of sin. We die because of sin. And death means separation from the life of God. It means a separation from all that is good, all that is light, all that is enjoyable, all that is pleasurable. Jesus told a story about this separation of life. In fact, Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. And the story that he told we know as this parable of Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man had no thought in his life for God. He lived life to enjoy life. He lived life to be wealthy. He lived life to succeed. He lived life to make a name for himself. And then he died. And Jesus described him as being in torment. You see, for him, death did not mean the cessation of life. It, mean, it meant a separation from anything that was good. And where there is an absence of God fully and completely, there is torment. You see, you and I can enjoy things about this life, partly because God in his grace is causing the sun to shine today, is causing the earth that he created to produce food, so that when you and I go to the store, we can purchase that food and we can enjoy our meals. He causes life to work. Seasons and every aspect of life that enables you and I to work, fulfill our jobs, get paid, take care of ourselves and take care of our family. But when a person dies, who doesn't know Jesus Christ, any aspect of God's goodness and God's grace has ended. This substitute life with a measure of God's goodness and a measure of God's grace comes to an end. And they begin to experience what life is really like when there is absolutely no presence of God whatsoever. That is what death really is. It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. After death comes judgment. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, and he said to them, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. For those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil first for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. And then he goes on to say, 
all who sin apart from the law, speaking of Gentiles, will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law, speaking of Jews, will be judged by the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight. Paul was driving home the point that there is a coming day. You and I right now are waiting for the coming of Jesus, Emmanuel. But there is a coming day, which we read about here in Revelation chapters 19 and 20, which the Apostle Paul refers to in this passage, the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. He emphasizes that it will be a day of trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. And that no one, absolutely no one, whether Jews or Gentiles, can be declared righteous in the sight of God. You see what he says here. Those who sin under the law will be judged by the law. That is a reference to the Jews who had received the law through Moses, telling them how to live in order to be acceptable and in a right relationship with God. And then Gentiles, who did not receive the law, who were outside of that covenant, well, they are included in that day of wrath and that judgment as well. For all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. The final verdict, every mouth silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. The Apostle Paul will go on to say, in chapter 3 and verse 22 and 23, there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Writing to the Colossians, the Apostle Paul said, you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Where do you and I fall on this scale of relationship with God? The Apostle Paul says that we are alienated from God. He declares that we are enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. There is not one of us who can declare that what we have done and how we have lived has made us right with God. Every single one of us are alienated from God and enemies because of our behavior. Writing to the Romans in chapter 5, the Apostle Paul said, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still alienated from God, Christ died for us. Because of his love for us while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. And then the Apostle Paul continued, 
since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You and I need to remember what God has done for us. We need to remember what this time of the year is intended to speak and speak deeply to us. In this time of Advent, you and I should not be in a hurry. And we should not be preoccupied. But we should be remembering that apart from the coming of Jesus Christ, we are God's enemies. And that when Jesus did come, even while we were still God's enemies, he died to save us from the wrath of God so that we would not be part of that scene in Revelation chapter 19. He died to justify us. He died to reconcile us. He died to save us. During that time of Advent, while he was imprisoned, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, In an incomprehensible reversal of all righteous and pious thinking, God declares himself guilty to the world and thereby extinguishes the guilt of the world. God himself takes the humiliating path of reconciliation and thereby sets the world free. God wants to be guilty of our guilt and take upon himself the punishment and suffering that this guilt brought to us. God stands in for, the God, for godlessness. Love stands in for hate, the Holy One for the sinner. Now there is no longer any godlessness, any hate, any sin that God has not taken upon himself, suffered and atoned for. Now there is no more reality and no more world that is not reconciled with God and in peace. That is what God did in his beloved son, Jesus Christ. See the incarnate God, the unfathomable mystery of the love of God for the world. God loves human beings. God loves the world. Not ideal human beings, but people as they are. Not an ideal world but the real world. Remember that Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. In the midst of bombs falling on Berlin and the city burning and Hitler and all of his hatred and demonic possession, killing the people of God, the Jews, exterminating them by the millions and bringing death and destruction across continents to hundreds of millions of people. Certainly not an ideal world, but Jesus died for that world. You and I would not characterize ourselves as being in the same company of Hitler, the Gestapo, the Nazi party. And yet the Bible says there is no difference. There is no difference. There is no difference. 
All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But what does God do? Paul goes on to say in the next verse, but now a righteousness from God has appeared, not a righteousness that is sufficient in his sight that can be done by anyone trying to live up to a code of goodness, but a righteousness that comes exclusively through Jesus Christ. He became the atonement penalty for our sins so that God might justify us and make us right in his sight. Understand what God has done for us. The Christmas story is wonderful, but Advent is meant to say to us, we are hopeless unless Christ comes. Diedrich Bonhoeffer compared it to being locked in a prison, and every day we are doing meaningless things. Only someone from the outside can open that prison door and release us. Our lives are meaningless no matter what we do, no matter how well we do it. It cannot justify us in the sight of a holy God. It cannot remove our guilt. It cannot give us entrance into God's goodness. No, we die apart from the goodness of God to experience a world that is full of the absence of God's presence and eternity of darkness and suffering. But God in his great love came. And God through his son declared that he would take our guilt and our punishment. Every godlessness, there is no difference in the sight of God. Your sin and my sin is as reprehensible to God as the sin of Adolf Hitler. There is no difference. Jesus dies, and he dies for sinners. Doesn't die for a good world. He dies for a real world that is full of sin. Pastor Bonhoeffer went on to say, Jesus does not want to be the only perfect human being at the expense of mankind. He does not want, as the only guiltless one, to ignore humanity that is being destroyed by its guilt. He does not want some kind of human ideal to triumph over the ruins of a wrecked humanity. Love for real people leads into the fellowship of human guilt. Jesus does not want to exonerate himself from the guilt in which the people he loves are living. A love that left people alone in their guilt would not have real people as its object. So, in vicarious responsibility for people, and in his love for real human beings, Jesus becomes the one burdened by guilt. Indeed, the one upon whom all human guilt ultimately falls, and the one who does not turn it away, but bears it humbly and in eternal love, as the one who acts responsibly in the historical existence of humankind, as the human being who has entered reality, Jesus becomes guilty. 
but because of his ex historical existence, his incarnation has its sole basis in God's love for human beings. It is the love of God that makes Jesus become guilty. Out of selfless love for human beings, Jesus leaves his state as the one without sin and enters into the guilt of human beings. He takes it upon himself. Do you and I understand what Jesus has done? Do we understand the love of God? Do we understand our own condition? We stand before him judged as guilty. And should Jesus not come, we will be part of the scene that we read about in Revelation 19 or Revelation 20. Without any hope, without any expectation of any other destiny except one, where there is a total and eternal absence of anything that's good. And that means only an existence of judgment, of punishment, of lawlessness, of guilt, of pain. But Jesus came. And Jesus did not come to present just a good ideal. He did not come to be a good human being or even a perfect human being and say, this is the way to live. No, he came to take your guilt. He came to take my guilt. He came to die as the guilty one. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossians and said, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. You see, there's only one way out. Someone needs to come from the outside to unlock the door of our prison and our sentence. You see, not only are you and I living a substitute life here on this earth, we are also living in prison. This is not God's world as he intended it. He is not pleased with this world. There is a day coming when he is going to destroy it. This world and everything in it, the Bible says, is passing away. And the only hope and the only future is in the gospel. Remember that the word gospel means good news. The story of Christ's coming is the good news. Remember that Matthew opens the story of Jesus and his life with these words. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. The good news is that when you and I were God's enemies... God's love was so great for us that he was compelled to do the one and only thing that could help us and rescue us. 
He so loved the world that he gave the gift of his son. But the gift of his son was not just a beautiful moment. The gift of his son meant suffering and death. He was made perfect, the Bible said, through his suffering so that he might become the author of salvation for those who believe. Only if he comes and unlocks the door of our prison, only if he takes us by the hand and leads us out, and then only if he then steps in the door and it locks behind him, and then he goes to death in our place, can you and I be acquitted of the sentence of death that hangs over us? This is the Advent season. It calls us to stop and think of where we stand before God, to shudder and to shiver in his presence, to fall at his feet and say, the only words that can bring us justification in the sight of God. God be merciful to me, a sinner. This time of Advent is meant to call us to what should be a daily practice in the life of every believer. The practice of repentance. God, I know that apart from your grace, there is nothing good within me. Forgive me of my sins. Make me like Jesus. Sanctify me and impart to me his righteousness. And by the Holy Spirit, enable me to continue in my faith in Jesus Christ, established and firm, and not move from the hope that is held out in the gospel. You see, it's only in Jesus Christ that you and I have hope. The writer to Hebrews characterizes it as this. We who have fled, like someone run, running, looking over their shoulder at the tornado, or the tsunami, or the thundering hooves of judgment, you who have fled to take hold, to take refuge in Jesus Christ. Oh, the great love of God. That God was willing to assume our guilt so that we may not experience his judgment. The great, great love of God that gave his son to be sacrificed for your sin and mine, his blood to make atonement for our transgressions so that we might be reconciled to God. Advent precedes the coming, the gift, the glory, the wonder. May you and I have a new and deeper appreciation of the love of our God who motivated him to take our sin upon himself 
and to experience the full weight of wrath and judgment so that you and I might experience the full blessing of his goodness, his grace, and eternal life. It is already the third Sunday of Advent, and Christmas is fastly approaching. Maybe you have not stopped through this season of Advent to consider the enormity of what took place when God became fully human and took your sins upon himself and paid your debt of guilt. If you are a Christ follower, I urge you, over the next week and a half before the Advent season is over, slow down. Remember that unless Jesus unlocks the prison and takes your place, there is no escaping the sentence of death that is on you. But because Jesus came, the one who is the key of David, the one who is the Prince of Peace, we have peace through his blood that was shed on the cross. I urge you to take time during this Advent season to remember again the great price that Jesus paid so that you would know the love of God. If you are listening to this message today, or if you hear it on a podcast this week, and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, the one who took your place, the one who paid the guilt that every human being has in the sight of God, for living apart from God, for living their way. I urge you, there is one response that God honors, and it is this, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And look to Jesus, who is God's provision, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, and the one who came and took your place, took upon himself your guilt, and died your death so that you could share in his eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Heavenly Father, I thank you I thank you that you intervened in the course of human affairs, in the direction of each of our lives. And you sent Jesus to pay the debt and take the penalty of your judgment on sin before it was too late for us. I pray that each of us we'll know with certainty in our hearts that we have put our faith and trust in the one and only provision, your Son. May we consider our great debt. May we be humbled once again by your great love. May we remember the great sacrifice that Christ was willing to do on our behalf. 
And may we make certain that we have fully trusted you for now and for eternity. Thank you for your great gift of love through Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. who motivated him to take our sin upon himself and to experience the full rate, the full weight of wrath and judgment so that you and I might experience the full blessing of his goodness, his grace, and eternal life. Worship him with me. unlocks the prison and takes your place. There is no escaping the sentence of death that is on you. But because Jesus came, the one who is the key of David, the one who is the prince of peace, we have peace through his blood that was shed on the cross. I urge you to take time during this Advent season to remember again the great price that Jesus paid so that you would know the love of God. If you are listening to this message today, or if you hear it on a podcast this week, and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, the one who took your place, the one who paid the guilt that every human being has in the sight of God for living apart from God, for living their way. I urge you, there is one response that God honors, and it is this, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And look to Jesus, who is God's provision, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, and the one who came and took your place, took upon himself your guilt, and died your death so that you could share in his eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that you intervened in the course of human affairs, in the direction of each of our lives, and you sent Jesus to pay the debt and take the penalty of your judgment on sin before it was too late for us. I pray that each of us 
we'll know with certainty in our hearts that we have put our faith and trust in the one and only provision, your Son. May we consider our great debt. May we be humbled once again by your great love. May we remember the great sacrifice that Christ was willing to do on our behalf. And may we make certain that we have fully trusted you for now and for eternity. Thank you for your great gift of love through Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.